Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. everybody. I'm very, very happy to have the Reverend Peter Hanagor. Is that a good pronunciation? Yes, it is. Uh, with me. Um, Peter comes highly recommended by some mutual friends, and he's got um, quite a tale to tell. So with that, Peter, could you just introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, and thank you for having me on, Piers. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Panagor. I am an ordained clergy person with a master's degree in divinity from Yale, where I studied mysticism directly as a result of dying while ice climbing several years before in Western Canada. I had never intended to become a reverend. I still had to be talked into it. And then it was a struggle for me most of the time. I've been in the church and I'm no longer in the church. But what happened to me when I was 21 years old in March of 1980, I went ice climbing with a new friend in Western Canada. We had gone for eight days of snow caving and one day of ice climbing. I was an outdoors person, so was he. We had complementary skills. I'd been winter camping and winter uh, snow. I've snow caved before that and cross-country skied and so winter was my element and it was Tim's element also. We went to an ice climb called Lower Weeping Wall north of Banff and Banff Provincial Park. Tim was a certified climber. I was a first-time ice climber but I'd climbed before uh, rocks and mountains. I'd been backpacking for actively since my first year of college and before that as a boy scout for you know however many years that was, six or seven years. So I, I was an outdoors guy and totally game to climb, not afraid of heights. And we made this five or 600 foot climb, which is world famous. People from, there were other teams there that day. We were the last team to climb up and I couldn't afford to buy all the gear. So I had to borrow all the gear or rent it from my outing club. And I came up short one ice axe and you need two ice axes. A set of crampons, harness, ropes, all that kind of stuff. Tim had all the extra gear. I had to come up with crampons and ice axes and a helmet, which I did, except for I only found one ice axe and I ended up with a hammer in one hand and an axe in the other. A hammer is significantly shorter and you have to grip a hammer the whole climb. On an ice axe, you can actually suspend yourself from a strap and relax. So if that, does that, is that kind of clear, Piers? Oh yeah, I'm acquainted with ice climbing, yeah. So then that slowed me down significantly. And it was, we, we agreed that I could do this. Um, I could, I did, but it wasn't a good choice. By the time we reached the top of the climb, because of my slowness, because of the hammer, uh, it was sunset. 
and the temperature dropped about 30 degrees and all the other teams that were climbing on the ice that day, maybe a dozen others left. And it was close to the highway, it was close to the ice fields parkway, maybe 70 yards, I guess, from the parking lot. And so an easy walk, even in the deep snow. So we got to the top of the climb as everybody else, the last team down below was leaving as the sun was setting, temperature dropped about 30 degrees and hypothermia hit us head on. And the first symptom was violent shaking. All my muscles were twitching. My jaw was clattering and Tim was in the same condition. And we were sweat through, wet in our clothes. This was pre-high-tech gear days. I had, I had one polypropylene undershirt. It was a brand new thing. Um, thank God for that. And we decided when the temperature went down all that far that quick that we were in serious trouble. It became quite obvious. And I, I need to throw in here, I'd been on the National Ski Patrol since I was a sophomore or junior in high school. And so I was the outdoor first responder wilderness guy, first aid on this trip. And, and I, was, I, I was up on frostbite and hypothermia because I was working at Bridger Bowl in Bozeman uh, on the ski patrol. And so Hyperthermia set in and, and, and I knew right away that we were in serious, serious trouble immediately. We were 500 feet up, no shelter, no food, no water, and deadly cold. And so we discussed spending the night right where we were, snuggling up, canoodling against the face of the rock or ice, which was behind us. I should also mention that this, when the sun went down, the moon didn't rise, but the, there were a, mil a million billion stars. And so we still could see to a certain extent. It wasn't pitch black. So we decided that if we stayed there, we were going to die. There's no way because hypothermia hit us so fast, we knew how serious the situation was. So we decided that if we were going to die there or die at all, we were going to die trying to get off the mountain. So I hauled up the rope, uh, pardon me, Tim hauled up the rope and it became a big knot and I had to untangle it. And all this takes time. We make our first traverse, we do our first rappel in the dark. Um, the rope gets stuck up above. We're stuck there for uh, another period of time. Hyperthermia advances, uh, loss of motor control, confusion, lips aren't working, brains not working, falling over, that kind of stuff. And the only way to get the rope loose, it had frozen to the uh, we wrapped it around a tree up above and you're supposed to put a piece of webbing around the tree so that you then put the rope through the webbing so the rope doesn't freeze to the tree. Well, we didn't want to do that because we were already confused enough to think that the webbing was worth more than our lives. We didn't want to lose the piece of webbing. So we threw the rope around the tree. We descended. We got stuck there. Hypothermia got much, much worse. Uh, around this time, uh, this is the middle of nowhere. I don't even know what the population was there, but I bet it was less than one person per square mile. It was really empty land. So a couple of cars drove by all night and the second one that came down pulled into the parking lot across the street, flashed its lights at us. It was the warden. We didn't sign out like everybody else. Got to sign into a wilderness area and you got to sign, you got to sign into a wilderness area, say what your plan is, when you're going, where you're going and when you're coming out. And we did that, but we didn't sign out. So he came looking for us sometime maybe midnight, I don't really know. And probably not too happy now that I'm thinking about it because he probably had to get out of bed. And, but he flashed his lights, we jumped up and down and waved our arms and he saw us. And so that heartened us, but, all, but we were still in serious, serious trouble. So we made our next traverse and that ended, got us off the snow and the ice onto rock. And we came down this rocky crag uh, where there was no ice and we wrapped this corner and we got to a ledge 
on which we stood and the ledge was pretty wide, you know, three feet, maybe eight feet, something like that. Iron pins, rings, uh, carabiners and harnesses permanently, uh, straps rather, permanently installed in this position on the mountain uh, for us to clip into. Um, and so Tim clipped in left, I clipped in right. I untied the, uh, I tied one end of the rope to my harness and took the other end and tossed it off to pull it down and it jammed. And so now it's, you know, a few hours before dawn and now we're in serious trouble. And the warden seeing us in this position thinks that we're, we're safe and dr flashes his lights and drives off and we're alone again. And uh, I couldn't get the rope loose. It, it, it had, I had barely any slack in the line at all as it was. And when I yanked onto the first, on the very first pull, it, it what I surmised was is that the, the rope jammed between like V-shaped rocks, typical mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, but I couldn't pull it and, and time went by and we discussed taking off our, uh, I discussed taking off my gloves and untying the knot and handing it to Tim, but there was no guarantee that, that he could, he would actually be able to hold the rope or reach the rope. And there's no guarantee that if I took my gloves off and untied the rope that I wouldn't drop the rope because I had frostbite all over my fingers. My feet were, my feet were like blocks of ice. And they were blocks of ice. I couldn't bend my toes. I couldn't feel my feet. My face had frostbite on, I, I have all my digits as, as peers can see, but I have residual, I have residual damage all over. Big toe, still can't feel the bottom of my big toe. Um, so what happened next uh, was that I realized how bad a situation that we were in and I knew I, I knew that I was going to die, and I had I had driven myself all night long with this interior drive for survival that I didn't even know that I had. It, it, it was a new it was a new experience for me to be able to tap so deep inside of my brain, my willpower to survive, and my only goal was to live. And everything I did was to live. Tim and I had even discussed not talking. We decided not to talk unless it was absolutely necessary because it consumed our energy. We were out of fuel. Um, I was a skinny 21 year old, no excess fat to my body. And it felt like toward the end that my body was, being, was, was energizing itself through muscle, but I don't know that for a fact. Mm -hmm. It just felt that way. But I got to this point where I knew that I was going to die there and there was no way I was going to get out of it. And I knew this because I started falling asleep. Now, before I fell asleep, my, I got hot. I got hot. I unzipped my coat. I know better. The, all the blood feels like it rushes to my chest. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is my body trying to save its heart and lungs and essentials. And I can drop off a hand and still survive crazy thoughts. And I unzipped my coat and um, was the wrong thing to do. That's, but I did. And Tim told me to zip it back up. I'm like, no way. I'm hot. And around that time is when I realized I was going to die. And I say it's kind of blithely now. Oh, I realized I was going to die. Well, I've done, a, I've done 40 years of trauma work um, around this because I'll tell you, dying in that circumstance leaves a mark on you. Um, and, it, and no matter, it didn't really matter whether I died and came back in terms of the, tr the trauma that was in my body when I came back. There was no miraculous healing of that. And so I had this wash of peace. I, I transitioned from the intensive drive to survive to recognition of death coming and peaceful feeling. 
and I started thinking about God and I started thinking about my family and uh, my my parents had my sister had run away when I was 14 and from our point of view, she had vanished and it was a traumatic thing in my family. And I was thinking another kid's going to be lost to my parents. And, but there was nothing I could do about it. And then I, then I began to fall asleep. I fall asleep. I'd wake up. I'd fall asleep. I'd wake up. I crashed to the rock in between. I, I stood up this last time. And as I stood up from falling asleep, when I have unconsciousness, and I say that because when I was, I, I was, I had no consciousness when I was asleep. And that plays into what I'm going to say next. And when I stood up again um, and was awake again, pulling on the rope again for the hundredth time or, or the third, I have no idea. The, my peripheral vision became tunnel vision and closed very rapidly um, to, like a spotlight fade to black. And, and when, that, when, my, when my vision went out on me, I didn't lose consciousness. And that's the first thing that I noticed is that I wasn't asleep. I couldn't see. I couldn't feel myself as if I was asleep, but I had complete consciousness. I was awake in the darkness. And, and, and the mountain had vanished in front of me and I could see instead an, an infinite expansive darkness that, was, that filled all of my vision and seemed to come right up to like the behind my ears of my head or further back. It wasn't like it was just in front of me. It was like I was on, I was sort of absorbed into the edge of it. And as soon as that happened, way far in the distance, I saw a pinprick of light. And when I say way far in the distance, I mean, like if, if I were the Hubble telescope and I was looking at the beginning of the big bang, it's that far away. It, and, and, and the weird thing was, is that, is that the darkness had depth to it. It wasn't darkness like when you go into a room and you close the door and all the shades are down, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's not, it wasn't like that. It was like that dark, but I could still see depth. And then this pinprick of light rushed toward me at uh, hyper light speed, faster than the speed of light. And it, be, and it got larger as it came toward me and, and yet remained contained. And it communicated to me telepathically, non-linguistically, I'm taking you. And I'm like, no way. I don't know what's going on here. I'm not, I'm not in for this. And I put up all of my willpower. I dug back and down inside myself. And I reached to that place that I had reached uh, the will of survival, the deepest part of me. And I put it up like a shield, like a mental no kind of thing. And it just took me. Like I, I was, all of my willpower was nothing. It was ultimate strength. I remember thinking all powerful, all intellect, and, and, it, and it took me and absorbed me and carried me and comforted me. So I went from this, this rebellious, you're not taking me state to this, oh, this, is a, this is comfort. This is like, this is sort of like I was, I was, I was in an, a, a containment unit of, of, of all power. I had no control whatsoever. I was in the presence of intellect beyond my capacity to comprehend and I was comfortable. And I was carried... Uh, up the proverbial tunnel as if it had direction, as if it was a narrow thing and not this infinitely wide space beyond my ability to understand. It was both at the same time. And I, and I, talk, about, I, I, I talk about my experience in paradox um, and I, I talk about it in sequence, and, but it's, there's no sequence. It's full of paradox. And I use metaphor to try to bridge the gap between those things. So none of the things that I say are accurate 
in terms of the experience itself, they mm. are as accurate as I can frame it in a way to communicate it, even to, even in terms of language to myself. And the reason I went, why I went to divinity school was to be able to mine the historic language of Western classical mystics, Julian of Norwich, Meister Eckhart, John Rusebrook, all these people from all over the West, um, in order to conceptualize what had happened to me, get some grip on it. Uh, but it also not only turned out to be useful for my thinking about it, it turned out to be the only tool set I have to talk about it. So I, I was carried by this entity that was part of this infinity, but also separate from it. And I'm not, I'm, the, and the longer I am away from this, and this is a fairly common near-death experience, experience is that two things. One, it never goes away. It, it doesn't, when you go to a place like I went to, it doesn't shut off. It's, it hasn't, and it never shuts off. And the other part is, is that it keeps revealing itself over time. And so the deep, the, the further I get away from it, the deeper I go into my meditative life, uh, my, my interior world, the more I understand about it. And so recently, uh, I, 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 I realized that I'm not sure what happened next. Did I pop out into this other dark, infinite illuminated darkness or did this entity expand into this infinite illuminated darkness i can't really tell you because it, it always seemed to me that i was being carried by a lesser into the greater but the greater and the lesser there's no separation from it mm -hmm. and and so now now it's a little uh, it's a gray area for me it's like well okay what well, exactly what did happen there so I pop into this, I, or I get enfolded into this illuminated darkness. So as far as I could see before, I could, I, I could see further than that now, but I could still not see the end of infinity. I knew that I was like a, a molecule in the middle of the vast universe of infinite illuminated darkness. Only, only I was bigger than I'd ever been. I, my body is like this, re, this reducer. It's a capacitor, I guess. It, it, is that right? Is that the right? No, uh, it's, a, it's an insulator. It, mm -hmm. it, it insulates me from my soul when I'm in my body and it, re and it reduces me too. And so when I got out of this insulator, I'm, I expanded to my full size, which is, I don't know, 10,000 times bigger than I am, a thousand times, I don't really know. All I know is that I expanded and I had no body. I was not a thing. I, I, I was in a place of nothing nothing, no thing. And I was no thing. Only I was no thing that was consciousness itself, not in totality, but of and on my own um, individuality. But the individuality of me, of my soul, didn't include Peter. Mm -hmm. Peter was like this thing that I left behind. Mm -hmm. And what I was, was Oh, this is me. This is uh, now I remember who I am. This is who I've always been. And I was, uh, I was unafraid. I was utterly in comfort. I was content. I was alone, but I was also enveloped. And I could see in every direction. I don't know if your view, your uh, listeners have ever seen the, a painting of a, like an orb with 10,000 eyes. I was like an orb with 10,000 eyes, or I was a single eye that could see in every direction at once. And my seeing was my thinking, was my being. There was no separation between my, my existence and my capacity to understand my existence. And what I understood was this was me. And, and I, and now I, I, I tell it in a sequence, but again, it's timelessness. I am in timelessness. It's 
all time and no time. It's all time condensed into the eternal now, but it's not just linear time. It's like more than that. There's more times than just physics is now talking about reverse time and other universes and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of what I was experiencing is that, that all of the, the other potentialities for time and other places, the way time flows, they were all included in the, in the eternal now. And, and so I'm, I'm in this eternal now and everything happens at once. And I tell it in a sequence. Um, so there, uh, an op a, a light. Now I, I, I have always called it a door. Um, it was like a door. It's like a portal opened in front of me, but it was light itself. It was this flowing, translucent and transparent light um, that was, you know, for lack of a, you know, something else, pearly. It was like it was like the the high tech pearly paint you see on a fancy car. Only only I could see through it, and it was solid and it was translucent at the same time. And what I could see through it was another a, a eternally arcing dark tunnel. And I also knew that I couldn't see to the end of infinity. I couldn't see where the tunnel ended. I couldn't see where the space I was in began or ended. I just knew that it went far beyond my sight. And I wasn't afraid of its immensity. I was content in my isolation within it because I wasn't, didn't feel isolated. I didn't feel alone. Uh, I, and so I, I reached up to this, this flow that led that was a, essentially a, a portal or a gateway and I touched it with my being my soul self and as soon as I did that it it, it revealed itself as all life all living all uh, mighty mighty creator pick pick any god language you want to apply to it bliss goodness wholeness living uh, power intellect overwhelming infinity and it just flowed into me and and it, it flowed into me and I heard my name called but it wasn't Peter it was it was the origin of my soul being created in the moment that I was there but also paradoxically created eons ago in a measure of time where there is no time and I could see the I could see the origin of my creation as a, a, I describe it as a single photon of one among a quadrillion times a quadrillion times a quadrillion photons that were like a mass of of creator uh, and I could see myself as the same and yet separate from, um, much reduced from, but of the same. And the voice called my name. It called me into beingness, cre created me, communicated to me saying, uh, I am creator. You are my creature. I create you. And I could see this long eternal, mm, that's the wrong word, this long forever length of the tail of my soul, the size of my soul from the moment of my creation until my Peterness, and I could see other lives. But in comparison, they were minuscule in comparison to the size of my soul. And, and I can't see into them now. I know that I saw them. I, I, I don't know if they were simultaneous. I don't know if they were in other universes or in other places. I don't know anything about them. I just saw that they were there and not one of them was me. All of them were me uh, with, a, with a mask on. And so while all of this is going on, I then 
see that I'm being seen. In being, knowing that I was created, I saw that I was seen and that I was always seen and that there was nothing inside of me that was unseen and that all of the things I had done as Peter came with me in a, a, a manner that I was attached to myself, my consciousness, but not the totality of it by any, even any measure, just a, an attachment to it. And I, I knew that I was known and I saw my own limited, imperfect nature in comparison to unlimited perfection. And I, and I, judge, I went through judgment, only the judgment was my own judgment. I, I, all, the, all the negative things I had done in my life, all, all the actions of hurt, all the pain that I gave away was karmically mine. And when I gave it to somebody, it actually lodged inside of me. And so when I, I went through this, this life review where I saw all of the pains I'd caused in my entire life in a, like a, in a sequence, but from the interior view, interior view of the individual to whom I gave that pain, I felt their pain as they felt it. Only the pain that I gave them turned out to be 10,000 times more than I thought that I gave them. And it included all the unintentional pain I had given away accidentally all of it. And I, I saw myself as I judged myself as guilty. I judged myself as guilty as having truly caused all this suffering, which was the opposite of what was being spoken inside me, which was love and bliss and beauty. And so it wasn't so much that, that I was being judged from above as it was that the, the perfection itself with a capital P showed me my imperfection. And, and then showed me that it wasn't my fault, that the entire universe, and in, I saw the universe, the, our universe, but also all of humanity, and I understood that we did not create ourselves. We did not, we did not make the system into which we are born. And so, therefore, we are not guilty for having caused the pain that we caused on a deeper level. I still had to, I still went through all of the pain that I gave away. And, and so I brought all that pain with me, but I also brought with me all love that I had given away and all love that had been given to me. And, and, it's, and it was this, it, the love weighed more than the suffering. The, the, the love allowed me, and this is all metaphor, the love allowed me to turn my face to the divine. The love allowed me to turn to face perfection, even in my own per imperfection. And, um, the voice with no sound. So I'm in this ocean. Okay, I'm in, I'm in this this eternity of of light, and it's all around me, and it's right up close to me. It's infinitely more than me, and it's also speaking inside of me with no sound and no words, and and just communicating to me. I love you. I made you. You're my creature. I know you. I've always known you. I've always seen you. I love you as you are. You are my beloved. You are my beloved. You are my beloved. For I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And I was infilled with. I was. I. I. I was loved. And and then I was infilled with this, this combination of of this list of beauty and love, joy adoration, understanding, intellect, knowledge, omniscience, um, bliss, paradise, wholeness, healing, uh, understanding, all of these things, they were all one thing. They weren't, I, I, they weren't separate words. They were all truth included in there. And anything I needed to know or wanted to know was answered 
instantaneously. People talk about the down, they get a download of information. I, I wanted to know about the structure of the entire universe. I wanted to know how the whole thing worked. And I knew, kaboom, just like that. I understood, I could see all the complexity, fate, destiny, molecules, quarks, the whole thing, all the chemistry, all the biology, all the cosmology, all the human interactions, everything was plain to me. And I understood, oh, okay, that's why it is the way it is. And all of my questions went away. And I found myself so infilled with this presence so as to be um, almost obliterated. There was so much of this light had come into me. My whole soul self consciousness was on the one more drop would. It's like that scene out of uh, Monty Python uh, where the guy eats the wafer and he blows up. I just one more piece. It was <laughs> like that. And I just was one more drop of the divine nectar. And I would have gone back into the oneness of being in totality. That's what it felt like. And, and it was. And when that happened, I then... I know I'm in the presence of God, which is totally self-evident. People, well, how do you know it was God? It's self-evident. You're in the presence of omnipotence, you know it. And uh, I said, am I dead? And the voice said, yes, you're dead. I said, um, I can't go home now. The voice said, it's your time to come home now. I'm like, well, but my sister, my parents, the suffering I just saw. Uh, the voice, and, and then I was taken in a flash to the edge of the universe where heaven and earth are interacting. And I was above and I could see below uh, and I could see all of humanity on earth, everybody on earth all at once doing whatever they were doing in that moment. And, and, and I could also see the, inf it's like I say, I'll say that I saw the infinity of love, but the infinity of love was not even the infinity of it. I couldn't see, it seemed like infinity to me, but I knew that there was more beyond it. And it said to me, uh, and the way that I love you now, with this infilling of, of this state of union, I have always loved you, always will love you, and love you in, this, in the now, eternally, and just like everybody else down there on those human those human beings only they can't see it where everybody's covered with a veil and this in this uh, uh hologram that i'm looking at uh, of living people everybody has a veil over them nobody can see what you can see it says to me uh, but i know now that you can see that what i say is true that everyone is as beloved as you and i knew that that was truth and the voice said Therefore, don't worry about your parents. They're going to be here too in the wink of an eye because I saw the length of my life. My 21 years was an instant. But I could also see my parents' faces and I could see the suffering on their faces in the, in the now, when in that moment. But I also could see their suffering of what their lives would be when I was dead, how much more suffering. And I could see how much suffering would be reduced if I lived all at the same time and and the voice said you don't need to worry about them these are these are the lengths of the amount of suffering but all but both of those lengths are the wink of an eye that their the timelessness is is the reality and the experience of time is not the reality when you leave time it's very easy to see how limited it is temporally spatially thingness and i i said 
Um, but I, I have, I made a commitment. I was in a theater company. I was going on this national tour, a college based thing. <laughs> and I promised not to get hurt. And I brought this up. Um, and I said, you know, I've got this commitment and the voice is like, yeah, so it's still your time to come home. And I said, but I haven't, I haven't gone through that door all the way yet. I haven't entered that tunnel. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't gone all the way yet. Do I, do I, if, if I go back to my life, can I come back here to this state of union? And the voice said, yes, you can come back to this state of union, but I want you to go home. I want you to go home with me, basically. Come on home. It's your time. And I said, um, but I haven't gone through this door. Um, can I live my life? And the voice said, you won't live your life. And I said, I choose to live my life. And the voice said, you won't live that life and send me back. And in the sending back, I had to make a choice between all of these entry points into the possible lives that I was now going to live because it was really clear to me that my life was over. And that meant not just for me, my life was removed from the time-space continuum of everybody around me. And now I was going back into the time-space continuum of everyone around me and I had to choose an, a, a way of living. And so I was presented with a million different entry points, and, but I could see all of their probabilities. I could see all of the probabilities, all of, all of the lies. And in the center of this, all of these entry points, these million entry points, like the, like the butt end of a cable off a suspension bridge, in the middle of it all was, was the divine oneness of light itself. And I, as I came rushing toward it, the voice said inside, choose. And I, and I thought, I want to be I want to have a little bit of a bohemian creative life. And so instead of aiming directly toward the light itself, the purity of it, I went off to sort of the side above it, not, not out of it, but not in the purity of it. And the next thing I knew I was being, I felt like I was being crushed and, and crushed and crushed and crushed and crushed and crushed like in a compactor and then screwed into my physical body, which I didn't understand my physical body. I didn't know where I was or what was going on. In, in Judaism, there's this idea of the, the forgetfulness of suffering. I forgot suffering. I didn't know what suffering was. When I was dead, there was no suffering there and it was eliminated from my understanding. And so now suddenly the first thing that happens to me coming into my body is the body is full of pain. And so I'm, I, my first experience back is I'm filled with pain and I don't know what it is and I don't know where I am and I don't understand what's going on. A moment ago, I was in the divine presence and now I'm, I'm in suffering again. Um, and it took a while for my brain to come up and my body to start to move. And after some period of time of trying to like, what is this thing? What am I doing? Where am I? Who am I? What is this? How can I think I, I, I my partner, Tim pulled me up and, uh, was screaming at me, you were dead. If you died, I was gonna die. And I opened my eyes. And when I finally got my language facility faculties back online, I was another person. I was, I, I, I didn't know, I, I didn't understand where I was. I had a hard time understanding how to use the body. I didn't know who I was. I mean, I, my brain had all this memory to it, but that wasn't me. I was like, uh, I don't know how to describe that. I'm st I still kind of live that way. And 
after some period of time, Tim got me to pull the rope and my fall must have yanked it free because on the first pull, it came loose mm -hmm. and we descended. And because uh, the, the car was right across the street, we got the tent and we brought our temperatures back up slowly like you do with hypothermia over a period of time. And when, we, when I deemed that we were warm enough, we got in the car and fired up the heater. Uh, and that's just the beginning. I mean, that, that, that took oh, quite a while to tell that tale to you all. Thanks for listening to me. But from that moment on, I live, I, I, I've been in an, a stranger in a strange land and an alien in another world. Well, there's an awful lot there. Um, I guess some of the questions that are really popping out at me are, So you find your way into a study of the Christian mystics. I'm assuming this is in, in order to really language your experience to yourself as much as anyone else. Yep. And was there something, well, how to, I guess what I would ask is of those, of those thinkers, which ones resonated most intensely with your experience? Meister Eckhart. Yeah, Meister Eckhart, The Cloud of Unknowing, uh, which is an anonymous book from the 13th century. Uh, uh, John Roosbrook, Love Mystic. Uh, Teresa of Avila for her mystical experiences. Uh, Julian of Norwich for the same reason. Hildegard of Bengen for, um, of, the, I guess that's the collection I would aim to in particular. But the, the thing about mystics and it doesn't matter whether they're Christian mystics or they're Muslim mystics or, or Zen mystics. They all talk in metaphor. Mm -hmm. Everybody's a code switcher in the mystical world. And, it's, and you, when you come back into your body, when you have a divine mystical experience, a mystical genius like John at the cross, you have this, this transcendent experience where the self is obliterated, where the self doesn't exist and you end up in a divine union state. You come back into your body again where the self reasserts itself in order for it to, to live in the world, you now find yourself having to go through the filter of the body to explain your experience. So there's all this all, uh, Christianity, like all religions, develop a mythology, a metaphor system, symbol system, all to describe the indescribable. And having listened to your talk in Seattle, you said that there was a long, even though you're, 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 you're working out, you're working with these metaphors, you're, you're digesting this experience as best one could, I suppose. You, um, you were very reticent about talking about this for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I kept my mouth shut for close to 20 years um, because a, I, I didn't really know what happened to me. I, I had I, near-death experience as a term. I didn't come across till 1986 really? when I read uh, Life, After, uh, Life After Life by Raymond Moody that my wife gave me a copy of. And she said, I think this is you. She, I told her. Yeah. Um, but I kept it quiet because, because, there's, because it turns out that there's a thin line between the, the world's perception of insanity and mysticism. Yeah. Always has been. <laughs> right. And so uh, I didn't want to end up in an institution by mistake because I experienced, um, all, I, I, it, it leaked out of me everywhere I went. There was no moment of my life where it was not present and I could not control its presence. And so my behaviors in the world became eccentric. Uh, 
And so I was, I learned caution pretty quick. And I, I take it the change that you went through was noticed by many. Yeah, my parents. So about five years ago, I finally asked my parents, what did you think of me that summer? And well, your mother, my dad says, your mother and I, we talked about it. We didn't know what it, what had happened to you. But, and this is no offense to you, Peter, but you were suddenly kind. You were kind and uh, compassionate and all those things um, that, you know, 21 year olds aren't generally. And uh, I, I, I was no longer a 21-year-old. I was set outside of my peer group instantaneously, A, because I knew my mortal state, and B, because I knew I wasn't even a human being. And uh, so my behavior around culture. Okay, so around culture, I came back with all of my belief systems gone. Anything, anything that a human being has thought up as culture, which is all culture became um, false to me, not because they were bad, but they weren't real. They didn't, they didn't exist. They all came out of our heads. Um, and, and so I, I grew my hair long. I, you know, where I, I shopped in used clothing stores. I went barefoot all the time. I was barefoot all the time. People were like, why are you walking on the grass? You know, it's gonna, it's gonna freeze tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, my feet are cold, but it's okay. <laughs> that kind of, I wore boots in the winter. Okay. But I, I no longer had any belief in anything at all and not religion either. And so when I went into Christianity, I didn't go in as a believer. Uh, I went in as, as a, as a mystic uh, who knows rather than believes. Then why, why seminary versus ashram? Yeah. I thought about it. Um, and I had, as an undergrad, uh, I was an English major. And so I read Romantics and I read Emerson and the Transcendentalists and which led me to the Tao Te Ching. And so I had, I had a smattering of reading around the world. Um, but I went to a professor who I was taking my, a class the next semester called Mysticism East and West at, back at UMass Amherst, where I was an undergrad. And we went to a monastery on a Zazen Sashin, uh, silent meditation. And at that monastery was the school of centering prayer, which is a practice of practice of prayer that I had learned in high school, because I went to a Catholic high school, like next door to the monastery, like two towns away. And, and they taught us the practice of centering prayer. And so I already had this idea, before I even took this class, that there was a silence inside. And so I went to this professor after this Sashin and I said, look, I've got this friend who had this crazy mystical experience, <laughs> my buddy. And I think I even said, it's a woman. Like I'll really throw him off the trail. <laughs> um, and I said, so my friend wants to dive ever deeper into contemplation and is super intrigued by Taoism and Hinduism and Zen. Um, and so this guy who happens to be a Catholic, uh, happened to be a Catholic deacon said, so this friend of yours, uh, is this friend of yours Christian, like by culture? And I'm like, yeah. He said, well, here's the thing. There are mystics in every single major religion in the world. And if you want to spend your, if your friend wants to spend her life in pursuit of the divine, um, it's easier to do it in the cultural context that you're already in. 
than mm. having to learn Sanskrit or Japanese or some other language, because you're going to have access, not only are you going to have access to the, to the literature, she's going to have access to the literature, she'll be in a cultural context um, that'll make it easier. And so that's why I chose Christianity, because, because it could have been Hinduism. And I've got the, uh, like over here, I got the Upanishads on my desk. Um, and I, I got a whole, uh, but Christianity, as it turns out, um, has a very strong strain of mysticism that lands very clearly in the not being end of things, the union end of things. And so that's why I ended up there. Um, I ended up hiding in the church for 20 years. I kept my mouth shut for close to 20 years as a pastor, every Sunday climbing in the pulpit, lying to the people saying I was a believer and I am not a believer. I have not been a believer for my life because this is the place I have to believe in. This is the place for me that isn't real. It's, and it never, I, I, near death experience isn't this thing that just happens to you. It's this constant, perception and i know that for some people who have a near-death experience um it's it, some people have it fade over time um i didn't want mine to fade over time i wanted more of it and as and as, as angry as i was for not being told that not being told what it meant that i wasn't going to live my life that i was going to live a different life i didn't understand that i was pretty pissed off about that um but for as much as that was true I knew I learned very soon that my only hope was diving ever deeper in. And so I took Jesus's words. I, I looked through the scriptures. I went to Catholic high school for crying out loud. I read the gospels. Jesus says, when you make your eyes single, your body will be filled with light. And that sentence made me think, this guy's like me. This guy, he knows what I see. And so I simultaneously with centering prayer ended up reading Pramahansa Yogananda autobiography of a yogi. And I was taking, a, I was a theater person as well. Um, and so I was taking a pantomime class with uh, in the school of Marcel Marceau uh, who taught, who teaches yoga. And so I added Pramahansa Yogananda's uh, breath practice to my yoga practice and also to my centering prayer practice. I kind of mushed the whole thing together and I've been pursuing it for 40 years now. So would you say that you felt like you were given uh, that someone who's been through what you've been through, there's a choice between deepening the experience, really working with it, or looking at certain alienation? Do you think that's too strong? Uh, no. Uh, it's, uh, it's alienating. It's like, so I came back and I'm in my body and everybody thinks I'm the same guy I was before. Right. And, and I have the same mannerisms, the same voice, the same uh, you know, character flaws, the right. same biology, but I am totally alienated. And so I can't speak for anybody else, but the, but the profound level of, of non-attachment to the world forced me to dive into the only thing that was is real for me and that's the other side because it seems to me it feels to me like most of me didn't even come back most yeah. of me still over there yeah. and that i needed in order to become functional in the world i had to a keep my mouth shut and b with all of my might pursue this on my interior world and the thing that being a minister allowed me to do i got to 
I got to be paid to meditate. So every day I meditated, I did yoga every day, I studied, I did, you know, I kept my research going, I kept reading and writing for myself, plus I had a writing discipline in the church um, as a preacher, and uh, nobody was the wiser what I was actually really doing. Right. It's really interesting because I, um, another guy I've interviewed, a friend of mine named Ed Tick, he works with combat vets, and he has this thesis that, you know, PTSD is not a stress disorder, it's an identity disorder. And that when people come back from combat and they're expected to, you know, yeah. call their old girlfriend and get their old job back, they're not the same person anymore. But he would say that a lot of the trauma results from there being no culture or community of people to acknowledge that about you. You know, there's no, there's no uh, for lack of a better word, cult of people to be initiated into. Right. And so when you finally did start interacting with other near-death experience folks, was there a certain relief in that? Oh, yeah. I found my tribe. Up, in, up until I started um, associating with the International Association for Near-Death Studies about f five or seven years ago now, um, up until that point, all of my peers had been dead for hundreds of years. My peer group, the people who I knew understood me were all these mystics. I knew that they understood me because I understood them as plain as plain could be. And so I, I had friends, of course. I had relationships. I got married, I, you know, but I had kids, but I didn't have a peer group. And now, now I have a peer group where I don't really, I don't have to explain lots of things to people anymore because, because it's, there's another thing that happens with this. It's not just that your body changes, uh, that you come back into a new, you, you come back into your body and you are a changed person inside your body. But, but often enough, you carry this sort of, you carry a radiance. You carry the, the knowledge that love is all there is. And you carry this connectivity to other people. They, some people call it empathy, but, but it's more than empathetic. It's, it's, it's seeing the divine in the other. And, and when people do namaste, namaste hands, that's not a physical practice. That's a, that's a physical reality. That, that to, to see the radiance of another person's aura, their soul, their halo, their presence, their energy, whatever you want to call it, is, is a, that, that was the, the weirdest thing to get used to because suddenly everybody, everybody that I've met had a radiance around them. Everybody had like this, this you know, one inch wide shimmer around them that not only could I see, but I could feel it with my own self. And so that, so that when, you know, you put your, I'm showing peers that I, I have my hands an inch away from each other and I'm running them in a circle, like a windmill over one over the palm of the other. And if you do that an inch or two away, you probably feel the, the, the electromagnetic energy, electromagnetic energy between them. That is like your soul, that thing right there. I, I see people's souls with it. Um, I, it's like, I have a, an eyeball in the palm of my hand. Um, and it's not, this is, people are like, it's been, I need to say to your audience that it's been as much a blessing as it has been a curse. Uh, it's, it's a curse because, because there is no cult. There has been no cult. There has been no group, no community. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, and I would imagine just listening to you, because you're the, you know, I've talked to a few people that have NDEs. I would imagine the sort of, um, sorry about that the hermeneutics 
of your respective experiences, how you are compelled to talk about them, how you don't talk about them, how others talk about them. It must be endlessly fascinating. Yeah, uh, I, 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 that's an interesting question. That's an interesting statement because nobody's ever really mentioned that to me before. Uh, I've always been compelled to speak. I've always been, from the moment I came back, I had a, I have a, an, in, and I call it a compulsion, but it's more like a roaring ocean, like a, like a, a Niagara Falls spilling through me, telling me speak. And I didn't on purpose. I kept my mouth shut. I had enough willpower to zip that thing right up. But the, the compulsion for expression arises from the divine itself. And it's, it's utterly irresistible. And the, uh, I, I'm not uh, Christian apologetics, you know, or the theological argument. Uh, I have no interest in that at all. Zero, zippo, nothing. Because I'm not, it's not what it's about for me. And so I, whatever people say about it, as long as it's not, or say about me, as long as it's not impacting my family or my life, they can say whatever they want. Because I know that in the moment that they die, they're going to see for themselves. And that moment is, uh, is an instant away from now, eternally. And the, from the eternal side, it's an instant away, and it's actually still already present. It's, it's present all the time in them and around them, and I see it. And so I don't, whatever they say about it is fine with me, because, because they're, still, they're still here, and they'll find out when they go. And as for what we say to each other, we're trying yeah. to we're trying to language it now. So yeah. so we have we don't have a universal language for it. I'm I'm pushing metaphor. I'm pushing myth, metaphor, and symbol. And once we recognize those three components of it, then we're going to be able to look at all the literature globally and our own language. Because when I talk to a Muslim about this or a Hasidic Jew about this, it comes through the Hasidic Jew point of view. But it's still the same union. And so if I can accept the language of Yahweh and, and Elohim and Allah, then if I could just understand that as metaphor and symbol and, and mythology that, that expresses the inexpressible, then it breaks down all the barriers all at once. Everybody's barriers go down and all the literature becomes globally accessible. And we're not fighting over, um, uh, you know, how much, how much God was in Jesus. You know, it's like, it doesn't really matter. Um, so in a way, that point kind of takes us to an interesting place. It almost sounds like folks like yourself, in a way, might have a, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, maybe a mission, or you have something in the world of interfaith dialogue that, and, and also with non-religious, non that is very timely. Yes. Yes, I, I, so 50 years ago or so, medical technology science started resuscitating people in the OR by the tens of millions over 50 years globally now. There are tens of millions of people. Science is driving spirituality. That is just a fact. The, the, it's, it's a new spirituality, but it's an old spirituality. It's new because it's no longer about belief. 
It's about experience in a, in a literally a global sense. And so we're all coming back with this new, old understanding of the truth of love. And, and, and I didn't know when I chose the word love to express my mission, that that's the same word that most near-death experiencers would choose for theirs. I had no way of knowing that. I, there is like a global mission. I feel every, every NDE that I've met um, who have gone to a certain level of death, you know, because you can pop out of your body on, on the street corner and pop back in again. And from that point on, you know that your consciousness lives outside your body. But that's different than being um, going all the way up the tunnel and entering into the light. Um, it, that part, which doesn't, which doesn't mean one is above the other, because mystical experiences from the point of view of heaven are all the same. There's no gradation from the, on the other side. But on, uh, but on this side, on, on, on this side, it seems to me that there's, you know, to go George W. Bush, the thousand points of light. Remember that? There's, there's, yeah. there's 10 million points of light in the United States. It's a very democratized form of spirituality. And it doesn't matter if you are uh, an atheistic stockbroker or uh, a, a trash collector. It doesn't matter because it's totally egalitarian. It's totally inside each individual. And all of us seem to be being able to communicate to each other because we all still have egos through the light itself. And so the light itself has carries the message and the light itself speaks for itself. And it, and it can be experienced in a collective. So when I go to these conferences with all these other near-death experiencers, which I like to, I prefer to call death experience because I've been near death before. That is an entirely different thing where, you know, that didn't kill me, but it could have. This is an entirely different thing. But when we gather together as a group, there's a magnification of, of the light itself among us and it's palatable. It's experiential. Wow. wow. And are you watching this, this, movement or this thing grow yeah the, the 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 thing that is going on for the last 10 years is people started taking voice i mean people have been talking about it there's just like eight or nine of them in the bible okay so this isn't the new thing it's just it has been a rare thing before and when when a certain level of population began to have this experience, people started writing books about it. Yeah. People started writing books about it. Science became interested in it. Organizations began to form. And so slowly over the last 40 years and the last 10 years in particular, it's been rising up higher and higher in the public consciousness because there are more and more books coming out. There's a series on Amazon, on Netflix right now. Um, and it's a, it's a growing cultural uh, awareness. There's a growing cultural yeah. awareness of it. It's and really we'll, interesting. We'll, you we'll, you got to wonder about the timing. You just really, like, we reach this sort of, um, I don't know, this place where the, the sort of enlightenment, post-enlightenment, Cartesian materialism just spent force in the world. Yes. And it, this would appear now and also have this strong uh, confirmation or interest from the medical world, you know, from the doctors who attend these people even. Skeptically, I might say. Yeah, well, but 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 also with inquisitiveness because they started noticing it so often that they took note. Right, they couldn't dismiss it. Right, they can. Yeah, 
You couldn't do that anymore. And you're right. You know, so humanity as a species really hasn't changed a whole lot in say 300,000 years, probably in a million years. We're, we're pretty much the same, driven by the same passions uh, with the same intellect. And to think that someone 300,000 years ago wasn't as smart as we are is probably ludicrous. Um, and that they weren't having the same emotions that we're having now with the same drives and the same tribalism. And so now we've filled the planet with, with all these separate tribes that push up against each other and the planet's in trouble with global warming as a result of human activity. Global warming, sorry, terrible, say, uh, climate change, I'm sorry, climate change um, because of human activity, but counterpoint to that is scientific activity to bring back the dead. And so now I think that we have the first time in the history of the world where we actually have an opportunity to advance spiritually. And I know, and it's being driven by science, not by story, not by, not by stories that we tell ourselves about our origins. Mm. Um, and so I think we have a chance, Piers, I really do. I think we have a chance because there are tens of millions of us in the USA alone. That doesn't include the rest of the world. Right, right. And largely because of 1950s technologies that saved people from what had been a certain death to from heart attacks. Largely. Yeah. Yeah. Largely paddles. You get your paddles, you get your injection. Um, and uh, that as that technology advances, uh, people pop over and pop back. So we have spiritual technologies of asana and prayer and paddles. And paddles. That's right. <laughs> they, I, they, maybe they should install paddles in every single church. <laughs> every pew gets a set of paddles yeah. oh it's your turn here's your community you today. i'm okay <laughs> right no, i'm kidding because 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 you can always go and everybody's gonna go but you can't always come back yeah um and really if i it, the, the love 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 the thing that about human beings is that we're built innately to love and so we already have this capacity in us even if we have enemies like national enemies or religious enemies on a global scale. Every person in those religions, every person in those political fields, they all love their family. They all love their children. They all love their spouses. And so there's this universality of, of love that's already inbuilt into us. That is the truth of what it is to be a human being. Um, if we tap into that thing, tap into that power uh, then we're talking about something. The other thing that's going on is we're all talking for the first time. Social media. We're all, I, I had a, I, this week, I've been, I've been, I've met a new near-death experiencer. She works for, produces programming for the BBC uh, radio. And she got run over by a bus three years ago. And uh, she is, she's in England. And you know, I, I talked to someone in Malaysia. I talked to someone in Japan. I talked to someone in uh, Turkey, someone in Australia, New Zealand. And it, it, the, we're all connecting with each other. This is just the beginning. This is just yeah. the beginning of the coming out. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, just, I'm excited to hear about it. And I'm excited to hear the kind of, um, research and, and expression that's going to come out of this for the rest of us. So that Netflix it, series has a lot of science peers. And what's it called again? I, I wish I could tell you it was number two on Netflix for a week or two. I'm not sure what it is. Life to afterlife life. I'm not sure the name of it. But oh, it's new. Um, 
for people who are interested in you or your work, where can they find you? Peter Panagore, P-A-N-A-G-O-R-E <laughs> dot love, Peter Panagore dot love. And I, I, I do um, mentoring and spiritual direction and some counseling as well. I'm accessible. Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so very much. And love, brother. And to all the audience as well. Thank you. Be well. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.